Welcome to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's a series of long-form, one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the artist and a foot in the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today is Lilla Faint. Lilla is a 10-year Army veteran. She served in the 101st and in JSOC. She's a military spouse. She's the wife of Charlie Faint, who's the owner of Havoc Journal, a vet rep board member, and of course, a previous guest on Savage Wonder. Lilla is a lifelong singer, a lifelong dancer, a lifelong musician, and not least importantly, she's also the managing director at Vet Rep. So it was a pleasure to have Lilla on, and we didn't just do it because we couldn't find anybody else, and we just went with the the obvious choice, the the woman that I work with every day. Um, Lilla, as being in a leadership role, it was important that we get her on the record, and Lilla is incredibly gracious. She is willing to cede the spotlight to others regularly. And it was, I felt it was really important to put the spotlight on her and get her story out Uh, because she's not just the managing director. She's also a client, you know, she's, she is very much the embodiment of the warrior artist that we celebrate at vet rep. And as one of the leaders at vet rep is important that we get that on the record. And I think it was a really fun time. It was fun for her and I to talk about stuff that wasn't related to the day-to-day operations of vet rep and to actually kind of get into the soul of what we're doing um, again and talk talk that through a bit more. Uh, we don't get too much into the shameless plugs, um, although we do talk about the theater and, and what we're trying to accomplish and why we're trying to do it and all that. But um, I think Lilla's origin story, let's say, is uh, compelling. I think it's something that a lot of you guys will appreciate, maybe relate to, maybe learn a little bit from. Um, But she is articulate and funny and poignant, and uh, it was a pleasure to be able to talk to her. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of Vet Rep, and this is the savage wonder of Lilla Faint. Hi, Lilla. Hi, Chris. How are you? <laughs> so, for everybody listening, um, this is uh, kind of awkward and funny, and uh, I don't want to say Lilla is low hanging fruit for us. That that seems like a that seems like a, uh, you know uh, backhanded praise, but you know it's like Lilla is obviously our managing director and is a huge part of what we do at Vet Rep. So Lil is always here. Lil is always available, and and as a result, uh, it, it was not overwhelmingly ambitious of me to say, "Hey, Lil, we should really do an episode with you." That wasn't you know a big ask, and it's kind of funny now because Lil and I just finished talking about business for twenty twenty five minutes, and now we're going to shift, and she is going to become subject matter. And uh, how do you feel about that, Lil? Are you ready to be have your life thoroughly examined? Oh, we'll we'll see. We'll we'll put the decision at the end. <laughs> Okay, well, listen, I want to start with this, because Lilla, Lilla and I, um, when we first met, um, it was at a dinner uh, at, at my house that uh, Charlie and Lilla and their kids came to um, with my family, and my first takeaway with Lilla was that 
there was an awful lot of, I don't want to say repressed artist, but there was an artist there and with, with, there was an awful lot of artistic, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, uh, feeling content. Like it, it seemed like there was a lot, like, I was like, oh yeah, th- this is someone that, that, you know, has been in the arts like just from birth and, and just was, it was kind of, uh, always had an affinity for the arts. Am I wrong about that? Did I, did I, I know, I know obviously you have a lot of artistic inspiration and influence, but, but did I overread that? Well, I, I guess in, in my sense, like when I think of somebody who's like super artistic or emotes that, you know, I see them really put together and they just have these beautiful poetic things that they say. And there's lots of times when I'm like, that's so not me. Um, and it tends to be one of those where I tend to have this like internal struggle between the artist that is in there somewhere, but also that very organized type A military person. And it's just constantly been that um, back and forth in my life of wanting both of those two things to, to, to be together, but sometimes are often um, in tension with each other. Totally. And it's funny. I remember a woman, there was a part-time job I held years ago um, at the Mark Taper theater in LA selling tickets. It was like, a, a it was, I already had a job, but I worked that job extra to make some, a little extra money. And I remember the woman there, I hope I'm not giving too much information because I don't, I don't want to dime her out. I don't think I am, but, but anyway, I remember the woman that, that ran that the ticket operation, uh, had gone to Juilliard. She was an actual Juilliard graduate, I think for acting, but maybe not, maybe it was for music. I can't remember. And she said, uh, at one point, she just happened to say to me in the context of some conversation, um, yeah, if you're good at anything in life, you will never be a good artist. You, you, it really has to be the only option for you. And if you if you're, you have capability in any other line of work or any other effort, um, that will always take priority and that will always be the, the path of least resistance and it will be overwhelming for you to try to be a professional artist as well. And I, I, I obviously, you know, immediately projected that onto her and was like, Oh, okay. So you're saying that you were too talented to make it as an artist because you had these other. But um, that aside, I, I, I always, and I never forgot that because it's one of those statements. I think that it makes it easy, either easy for you to blame yourself for not being the artist that you want to be or to uh, hold yourself above artists and go, well, the only reason you're wildly successful in making six figures is that you have no other skills, whereas whereas I am broke but multi-talented. And uh, so I, I don't know which one has more credibility, but what do you think? I mean, I, I, I bring that up only because you mentioned the obvious tension between kind of that left brain, right brain artist, you know, uh, uh, details person. How does that statement strike you? What do you think about that? Uh, in my experience, I have to say, when I've met really talented artists, I tend to find that they're very successful in many other facets of their lives. And kind of, um, I guess one of the best examples of that was when Charlie and I were stationed in Korea, his company had got together and we created a band and I came over from my unit and joined in with them. And the soldiers and officers from his, his company that joined in they were all super talented and super successful. Like they were the movers Mm. and shakers of the unit. 
and they had these additional talents. And it was just interesting to watch that. And another example, it seems like every time I've been involved in church ministry and doing those things, whenever you have to do something for the chapel, like half the choir would come out to come and serve communion or half the choir would come out to go do Uh all these other things. And so it seemed so much to me that the, the, and maybe it's just a musician thing. I don't know, but yeah, um, that's artistic and who are very successful in that. And, and, and that kind of thing, they just seem to be successful in other areas of their life as well. Were they professionals? Were any of them, or did any of them go on to be professionals? Um, so two of them, I, I mean, like they're not playing, headlining, whatever, but they- in They're their, making a living. They're but making you know, a living in their communities, mm-hmm. they are certainly um, doing quite a lot, doing paid gigs, um, okay. you know, and kind of known within their community. They're not making it big on the bigger stage, but mm-hmm. they're, they're known within their communities doing things. So no, they're not necessarily professionals, but the folks that I've seen here at the West Point Band- who are mm-hmm. professionals in the other facets that I've interacted with them and things again, very successful people in lots of different ways mm-hmm. uh, and, and whatnot. Now, sometimes they think differently. They look at the right. world a little differently. And so sometimes that again, causes tension because it's just a little bit different, but um you know, I don't know. I'm sure that there's always, no, it's interesting. There's always those people sure. who do well or don't or only good in this. But on the whole, from what I've seen, I, I'd have to disagree with the lady. Interesting. Probably. Interesting. No, that's good. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's kind of one of those thought experiments. I never had a an absolute concrete answer, but um, but yeah, it's always one of those things that that uh that I thought about. I want to start though, um, or I guess we already started, but I want to go back to your origin story, the Lilla faint origin story. And I, I gotta say, I'm going to keep doing references to Lilla like this throughout the show because, uh, Lilla, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is you hate to be the center of attention. Like there, there's a cringe factor where you're like, ah, come on, not that, not don't focus so much on me. Um, and, uh, so I just find it hilarious that, that we're going to do everything we can to throw the spotlight on you today and make this all about you in, uh, any way that we can. Um, so let me go to the Lilla Faint origin story. What was your first musical influence? Because music really was the art that you first were inspired by. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my mom, she was a performance major as well as music education. Um, and so I, I literally came into the world in music. My mom you know, sang me to sleep, but was a professionally trained singer um, and performer and, um, taught piano lessons at, at three. My mom said that I came and just started, you know, not banging on the piano kind of thing, but just, you know, t- trying to mimic her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was just kind of always my thing. She said as well with dance that she would watch me move and my brother's older and he, who would run into things and, you know, do typical, very <laughs> big boisterous boy things. And I would be doing stuff and it looked like I was going to hit the table leg or do something. And then I would just gracefully get around it or something. She's like, she needs to be in dance and she needs to be on the piano. And so that's, that's where it started and just went with her everywhere. She was the church choir director. So we came to church and I was in there and heard all the practices and 
you know, all the Christmas and Easter type stuff with the Messiah and all of those kinds of things went to her concerts that she participated in the community choirs and orchestras and things. And so just music was just everywhere around me from birth. What, so it was music that started first and then dance followed shortly thereafter? Yes. When I was old enough to be able to go to a dance school and do the classic ballet and tap and all of those kinds of things, um, certainly. But music has been consistent my whole entire life. There's not really been a time in my life that there wasn't something that I was doing that, that, that I wasn't involved in music somehow. And was it always piano based? Were there other instruments you played? Was it mostly as a vocalist? What did you find yourself gravitating towards? Um, different phases of life. So piano was the main thing growing up. Um, I participated in church choirs and did a little bit, but then um, opportunity to, to join band started off with that. Was a flute player originally. Oh, really? Um, oh. Yep. And in junior high, saved my money. You know, as a seventh grader seventh grader going into eighth grade all summer long, worked my tail off, bought a piccolo, so excited. And my band director met me on the first day of school and said, you're going to be my oboe player now. And my heart sank. I brought the thing home. I tried it. I sounded like a dying duck. It was awful. I, I, which I'm just not somebody who can play a reed instrument. It was, it was bad. My dad made fun of me. It was, it was bad. So I happened to be around the high school band director. My brother was a clarinet player and he was in the high school. And so I was around them and I overheard him say, boy, I sure wish I had another French horn. My favorite instrument in the whole world is cello. I just think the cello is the most beautiful instrument. The mellow tone, it's just amazing. And French horn is the closest you can get in a band to the the cello in tone quality and what it plays and similar kinds of things. And so, um, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. He's like, no, you, you're going to be my oboe player. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'll do anything. And so he made a deal with me that if I could get audition and get into, uh, we were in Louisiana at the time, so parishes instead of counties, but all par- count, all parish band in October, he would let me switch. And I have never practiced so hard <laughs> in all my life. <laughs> was it out of love for the French horn or fear of the oboe? combination. Okay. But definitely fell in love with it. Certainly helped that one of my really, really good friends in high school played French horn too. And I just thought the world of her thought she was amazing. So the opportunity to sit next to her during band and hang out with her was definitely also a great motivation to doing well. And, and again, it was the closest I could get to, to cello. We didn't really have a string. There was like community string, but it was just different. Um, at that time in Louisiana, there wasn't a string program. So if I was going to do something similar to that, French horn was my opportunity. I was not going to be allowed to go back to the flute. So that was kind of a dead thing. So it was oboe or horn. Those were my options. And so I, I grabbed onto that horn and did my best. <laughs> What did what kind of music did you what, what kind of music did you play and what kind of music did you want to play? Did mm. they were those one and the same or did they, did you aspire to something different than what they were giving you? Sure. So um, t- typically it was like your classic band music that you have in high school and that kind of thing in in Louisiana, uh, Southern Louisiana. Football is king, and so doing the big, awesome football shows that bands do. 
this is early nineties. So we're doing Phantom of the Opera that was new and exciting then. And, you know, some of those bigger show tune type things certainly loved all of that. Um, of course, anything John Williams, any of those like soundtrack stuff, because of course he loves French horns. So that made it exciting to play and to do. So I liked kind of that more classical um, kind of thing. I love listening to jazz and hearing it, but it scares the living daylights out of me because of the improv. And I want oh. to have, I want notes and I want to be told when to do them and how to do them. Um, and so you're a control freak. I, you, you, you like left and right limits. I, I do, which is probably why I'm the managing director. <laughs> <laughs> instead of something a little bit more out there like an artistic director <laughs> instead of the guy that has 35 v-neck uh white t-shirts that he wears every day and, and a long beard that's right well that's yeah. control right there you don't have to think about what you're going to put on like i love that part of the military i didn't have to think about what i was wearing i put it on you know t- people told me what to wear when to get there what to do that was fantastic but then, but then there's that tension because then there's what, what about the individual of individuality of the person, right? That tension of like, well, hey, but I also I'm a person with specific needs and specific desires, and hey, talent management, you know. So <laughs> it's always it's always that that conflict, right? It makes some things easy and some things hard. Sometimes, yeah, but I I just always figured that my performance was what was going to show, and it, and, and in sure. some ways I think that that shows too with music, right? Like we all are playing the same notes and those kind of things, but. If I can put the the right touch to the note, the the you know the accent where I needed to put the accent, those kind of things, you know, in some ways that's my personality, that interpretation of the music. But having those yeah. re- right and left limits of, you know, here's the note, this is when to play, this is all this, and some guidelines from the composer of generally this is when I want you to get loud and when I want you to get slow, and all that was really great. But just the the wide openness of jazz. Listening yeah. to it is just fantastic and exciting and and mesmerizing in some ways. But to try to do that and do it well is one of the more frightening things I think I've ever done. Did you play jazz? Did you get, take a crack at it? I, I, a little bit. One of my um, other music instruct, instructors in high school, you know, taught me the blues progression and tried to get me to do some of those kinds of things. Um, that was a little comforting because it, it, it had a pattern. So you right. just followed the pattern and, and, and did that. Um, but I, I just never really, I never could quite get there. The closest that I've really gotten to something like that is with chapel now and all of the, the contemporary praise and worship. You kind of get a chord sheet. Here's your chords. There's not specific notes I'm supposed to play. As long as I stay within that chord structure, I'm okay. Oh, so really? Kind of. Yeah play along with it. And so that's been, that's been interesting because it, it certainly has, um, I've gotten better at it and, and I've gotten more comfortable with it. Um, but I tend to stay in a very tiny little area and I don't get too crazy with anything. You're not going to find anything fancy piano playing, but it's enough so the singer can do what they need to do. And the music comes out and I stay with the band generally and, and that kind of thing. But that's that's the closest I've come to without having like every note spelled out on exactly what I'm supposed to do. And it's kind of like play a D chord for the next two measures. Right. Good luck. Right. Right. <laughs> so what when you were having the kind of these these early moments of of uh you know very influential moments, obviously, in, in the growth of any person, you know, where you're 
getting involved in music, having to learn these different instruments. You're a kid. You're listening to music on the radio. What were you listening to? Where did any of it rub off on you? Were you? Was there ever a part of you that was like, "Hey, I want to do something more poppy. I want to do something more classic, rocky." Or were you like, "Look, no, I really like um, the lane that I'm in, and I'm very happy where I'm at." And, and was the pleasure? Did you get pleasure from listening to it a lot, or did you really feel like, "No, I need to be playing"? That's where I really vibe off the music, as if I can be an active part of it. Yeah. Um... I guess there's always like always that little bit of a person, you know, like everybody has that little bit of like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool to be a rock star, you know, um, and whatnot. But again, my personality, I'm really much happier being in the background and being a support player. French horn isn't your typical solo instrument. Um, Piano is, but that wasn't my type of playing. I didn't do the flashy fancy stuff. I tended to, to want to stay with the kind of quieter, slower things, um, uh, more classical Beethoven, Bach, things like that okay. um, with that. So I, I, and I knew I was never going to be good enough to be like a concert pianist. So that was not anything that was on the, the thing. Um, my, so I loved listening to all kinds, oldies and the, the top 20 of the time I kind of kept up with music and sang along and pretended I was on stage and did the classic teenage thing, but I never, really saw myself doing that, uh, gone into something with music. I, musical theater would have been where I would have gone. And that's where I saw, um, I have a much more classically trained voice. Um, and so that's where that would have flourished and, and, and kind of what got me excited and wanted to be a part of something. I loved the, the theater side. I loved the fact that the music was there. Um, and, and again, all the big things were kind of coming out and were the bigger stuff you had Phantom that had just recently come out in the later eighties and was coming over to America. And so that was, you know, that big bombastic, just full orchestra and all that. And so I kind of, I had a little bit of tension with that too. I would love to have been like a dream Christine on stage doing that. But at the same time, I would have been happy to have been in that orchestra pit playing third French horn. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was always kind of one of those, oh, that would be cool um, to do. And it was one of the, I, I, again, what I actually did with it in the horn, that was a big part of my life, playing the French horn. Um, I got some money for, for graduation. I bought my own French horn. They're pretty expensive instruments. Usually you borrow them from the band and the school. And um, I knew I was going to college and going to play. Even though I wasn't going to major in music, I was I wanted to continue with that. And so I bought my own horn. And um, actually flirted with and auditioned to be in the Marine Corps band. Really? Yep. And what was the what was the decision making process? What did you go through? Did you actually try out for it, or did you like what happened? What was the story with that? Uh, yeah, um, I, I knew I wanted to be in the military, and uh, we had Army ROTC, so that's what I knew. That was what, what was comfortable for me. But man, those Marine uniforms are pretty. <laughs> 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 I, you know, a high school teenage girl, you're looking at these really handsome Marine, you know, NCOs and officers, and those uniforms, there's just something about them. And I liked the Marine ethic. I liked how, you know, when I went to go talk to the different recruiters and just learn more, man, that it was just they, their ethic of work. Their, their way of doing business. I was like, you know, again, the organization, right? Like having yeah. everything in a row. Boy, that really, 
made me excited. I had gone to a concert with the, the, the Marine Corps band, the main one from DC that came down. Mm. Um, it was just unbelievable, uh, presentation. And I was like, Oh, I could, you can do that for a living. Like you could get paid Mm. to play your instrument. That's, and to be in this kind of, of a band, that would be amazing. So I started talking to the recruiter and just asked them the next thing I know, you know, it's one of those, you talk and you say something, the next thing you know, you're in an audition. And there I was uh, doing the audition I missed it by two tenths of a point. How does that work? I, uh, do you have judges like yep. sitting there giving you cards and everything? Really? Like they're well, I mean, like they're scoring, and then they show you the score sheet at the end. Wow. Um, I I like to play music. I don't like to practice scales and do the technique. And so my, some of the scales they asked me to play were the the really uh, more difficult ones that nobody really does, but you really should know. And I didn't practice those. So I flubbed those a bit and that's what dinged me. And I think part of it too, in some ways they could see some of the hesitancy because I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, and I asked at the end when they told me, you know, you, you, you didn't score high enough to be accepted, but you can always come back and audition again. Here's some things you need to work on. And they showed me, I said, okay, well, what would have happened if I had, and they started going through it like, well, after you graduate this, this spring in, you know, in summer, probably June, you're going to go to boot camp and then you're going to go through the, the military middle, uh, music school and then you'll go to your unit and you'll do all this. I had an ROTC scholarship at that point and was already committed to going to university. And I said, well, well, how did like, so I go to boot camp, but then I go to college and then I go and do the ROTC thing. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand bands members are always enlisted. They're not officers. And I was like, so I can't be an officer and play an instrument. They're like, no, that's not how it works. The only officers we have are the conductors, but that's a different route. And that's a little bit, you know, like it was more complicated. And, and that was, I was like, but I'm going to college. Like I couldn't get right. the two together. And so I was like, Ooh, this sounds amazing but I had plans to go to college and to do ROTC and to do these things. And so when the two didn't go together, then I realized that music isn't going to be a career for me. It's going to be just like a passion of mine. And the army was going to be the career and those two weren't going to necessarily mesh together. Was that the moment you had, you already arrived at that decision. It sounds like you had, like you already knew that music was not going to be your career at that point anyway. Is that right? Or was that kind of the moment that it made it official for you? Yeah. My mom and my band director tried really hard (laughs) to get me to consider music as a career of some sort. Um, And what was that? What did that mean? What were they envisioning? uh, Doing uh, probably music music education primarily, right? Like it's really hard to get a degree and become a a performance major and, and, and live comfortably in that situation. And so you typically also get the music education. Um, I, I loved, I had the opportunity my senior year to be a student conductor. So I was basically like a mini band director that Mm -hmm. year. And that was the first year they'd kind of let someone do that. And I loved working in the high school with my high school band. Um, it, it was great learning for me of peer leadership 
in a lot of ways. And it was the best opportunity that I'd, I'd had to have that, you know, those tough conversations. Hey, we're not quite cutting it over here, trumpets. We need to get you up, you know, having mm-hmm. that. And it's, you know, they're my friends. I'm going to see them in physics and they're going to help carry me through the lab later that day. But now I just, you know, fussed at them for not getting the right note right. rhythms or things. And, you know, figuring out all of what that peer leadership looked like. Um, but I enjoyed it and I tended to, to do well in it. Um, went to competition and did things and, and got good marks on my conducting skills and being able to get the band to emote what, what the music needed to do. And so it was definitely tempting. I just couldn't see how I was, the military was pulling on me so hard to, and I could, I saw myself as, as a military officer of some sort. And when I couldn't quite put those two together and make music and the military work in the way I saw myself, then it just, it, it wasn't. So I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that officers weren't bandsmen, but I needed someone to tell me up front. And so I really had to have that cut. Well, you really had, I mean, and this is kind of the nature of that warrior artist dichotomy, right? Is that you, you have, I mean, the military is nothing if not clear cut. Okay. Hey, I know, if I hit all these marks, I get this paycheck. This is my pay scale. This is how many years I'll be at this rank roughly. And then I'll proceed to this. Like your life starts to get mapped out for you. Whereas a professional musician, <laughs> I don't know. What do you get? What do you do? <laughs> you know, uh, can I work a wedding this weekend? Um, am I going to LA and going to busk? You know, like oh, what's your life look like? So two radically different visions um, and, and paths. And it, certainly with no guarantee in the music world, I think you're right. I think that's what always makes it risky and unappealing, especially for somebody who already has talents in another very set direction where it's like, well, I, I, there's an expected, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of known quantities, right. In, in this one path. And that makes more sense. What was it about the military, though, that was pulling on you? Because this was this was the '90s, right? And this was peacetime, so there was no 9/11 to motivate you. There was no. What was it that was drawing you in, down the warrior path? So I blame my brother, which is funny Man. because Man, they're the worst. <laughs> well, and it's funny because he's very pacifist, pacifist in some ways in the way he looks at things. But he, he's three years older than I am. So he was a senior when I was a freshman. He was in ROTC and he loved it. Like from the time when he was a freshman, he came home. I helped him shine his boots. Like I, again, I think I just really loved all of the um, organization and predictability of what the military expects of you. And like you said, right, there's those paths and I'm very performance oriented and so if you tell me I've got to do this, this, and this, and I get an A plus, or I get a pat on the back or something, then that's, that's where I groove and do really well. And so I wanted to, I, I liked that environment. I watched him, he would drill me, you know, and, and to practice being able to drill someone or I, he would teach me to do it so he could practice his left faces and all of that so that you could do the drill because drill and ceremonies at the, t- you know, that's kind of what high school ROTC is all about no, right. the drill. You know, Especially I got, in the 90s, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there really yeah. wasn't a whole bunch with that. And it, I mean, high school ROTC is more about um, the civics nature of serving, right? Mm-hmm. Like the point of service and that this is, this is um, what your 
what your nation is about and, and what the military does for the nation and that service oriented. It's not, you know, you're not going out and doing field exercises and doing right. all of that. But, you know, like I did the the drill team with the rifles and doing the spinning and, you know, all of those fun things. And I just found that fun because that was creative, right? We got to create our own routes and, and how we were going to do our routine, but it was still very regimented. And I loved that. And once I got into RTC and I just, it was one of the, I excelled in it and I liked the camaraderie. It was something that I was part of like that and band, that's something you could do all four years. So you're with the same teachers, you're with kind of the same group of people you had ready-made friends and in high school, right? That's a tough, that can be a tough environment. And so I had people that I could depend on through high school to kind of get me through and not have to worry about the in crowd and the this crowd or whatever, because I wasn't always going to fit in. Like I was always on the outer, like not outer ring, you know, in the sense of like completely outcast, but it was like the in people. And then I was kind of like on the cusp where I could be like, talk to the in people and they wouldn't think I was a complete nerd and a complete person, but I never could get into it kind of a thing. And so this gave me a home where I was yeah. could be comfortable and could be myself. Yep. And that's what you were probably known as, right? If you go back to a reunion, they're probably like, oh yeah, Lilla was band chick and ROTC. Like that's your lanes, right? That yeah. kind of stayed with you. That was, yeah, that's who I was. You know, I was voted most likely to be a general, you know, like that, that's just who the new was and, and people appreciated that for that. You know, if they needed something in that lane, they came to me for it. So it is funny because that, so as much as music had been with you since birth and the military, I mean, that, that was not, you were not coming late to that party. I mean, you got there right at freshman year of high school and you were already starting to just get that, that feeling that that's where you wanted to go. But you knew, I mean, yes, it was the nineties and all that, but and so war wasn't necessarily imminent, but you knew things were going to get more serious than DNC on the, in the parking lot, you know, after school, did that, how did you feel about that? Did that worry you? Were you looking forward to it? Were you, um, it would just, what was your mindset about it? Do you, were you like, yeah, I'm going to be a warrior. And did you, did you feel that kind of martial vibe or was it kind of like, no, this is professional. It's a career path and I'll do what I have to do. Well, you know, I think again, in that time, it was just more of like, right. American, do, America can do anything. The wall had just come down. Like we were on top of the world. I, I grew up in, in the Reagan era of, you know, just, strength and power and, and, and that kind of thing. We grew up with Top Gun mm-hmm. and all the, those kind of, you know, feel good movies about everything and, and whatnot. Now I do have to say my brother was on the path to an RTC scholarship and he was the class of 1991 and the Gulf war broke out and he was like, you know, maybe this isn't what I want to do because he was thinking oh. peacetime army for such a long time. And he kind of stopped for a minute in his tracks and went, Oh, oh my goodness, maybe, maybe this isn't, the, the right career path for me. And he dropped the ROTC scholarship and went off to private college somewhere. And really and, like he was a hundred percent going to be going. My parents went, oh, what are you talking about? But understood it. And I think that was perfect for him. Um, he's so incredibly intelligent and, and really just cerebral on a lot of things. But when it came time to like kind of the more hard charging kind of things, he was a little bit more soft on that. I think the army would have been difficult for him. He would have been a great FAO, 
in the upper level times kinds of stuff. But I think those younger years as a Lieutenant would have really yeah. been tough for him. I was a little bit more get into the grit and I liked all the, the hard stuff. I was a tomboy and I wanted to get dirty and run around and do cool things. Um, I didn't. And again, right. Like the experience that I had where I really understood war was Gulf war, hundred hour right. war. We won no problem. All right. Sign me up for that. That's easy. Yeah. Right. Like I'm yeah. totally going to be all about this. I'll jump out of the airplanes. Like I want to do all the cool stuff. And so I, I didn't, really understand really what it meant to be in the military when I got on. I thought it was going to be this amazing opportunity to travel, this amazing opportunity to meet new people, opportunity to serve my country and be a part of that. But I really didn't understand in that naive, you know, young person, I can conquer the world, really what it would mean if I was serving at a time of true war. Like sure. I didn't, completely grasped that. And so 9-11 was a wake-up call. Um, and it was kind of like, whoa, okay, like I'm not playing army anymore. I'm in the army and I have people that I'm responsible for. And this could this could get bad. And you were in Korea when 9-11 happened, right? I was. And and just describe that. Describe what that change was like for you mentally. Um you know you don't you don't feel I think the big thing was of course, we're 12 hours ahead. So it was nighttime for us. And we got recalled in at about 10, 1030 at night to get accountability of everybody. And I'm walking through the streets of Korea, um, which I always felt very safe. Like I'd go down different alleyways in Korea that I would never go in certain places in America. Um, but it was the first time that I found myself really afraid and, and kind of hesitant to, hesitant to say to somebody that I was American, it was like, oh, there are people in the world that really, truly hate us. And, and that was a big wake-up call to me, too, because having been in Korea, people were kind, but you saw that they generally very supportive of America and everything I had seen and heard in my world was that people are generally, you know, America, you know, pretty good. But that's not true, and that wasn't really what the world was. Um, and, you know, we, we, we would do our exercises and we would fight the bad guys, but I never saw them. And right. so then seeing them for the first time and seeing the buildings and seeing the destruction, you know, and we'd seen the coal happen. We'd seen the embassy bombings, but those were one-offs in my brain. Right. Right. My Intel brain hadn't really turned on a hundred percent and realized enough. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, the naive, kid grew up on that day and realized that there really is a lot of evil in the world and that I have to open my eyes to it. I can't just live blissfully in my own little world. That's fine without realizing what's going on out there. What did it do for you as I, again, I keep using this word cause it just, there isn't really a better one uh, as hokey as it sounds, but what did it do for you as a warrior? Did it make you run towards danger more or did it make you go, whoa, okay, that was a splash of cold water across the face. Hold on a second. Let me, uh, let me recheck myself. There is certainly hesitation. Um, I think I started to wonder, like, am, am I ready for this? Um, as an Intel person, I seemed to live kind of a dichotomous life. I spent a lot of time in the arms room, making sure that we followed physical security. I took care of people's security clearance. And, and that was my life for most of it. Um, and 
prior to even being in Korea, I had been an honor guard platoon leader. So I wasn't even doing intel stuff. I was doing ceremonial stuff. And so my, my, gar- I, my world was a garrison world. But all my training, having gone through the basic course and stuff like that, was how to be a wartime officer, how to figure out enemy courses of action and how to figure out, you know, what's going on and, and do pattern analysis and all of those. But I hadn't had the opportunity to really check out those chops other than simulated war games, which were pretty canned. Like, I didn't really feel like I had really tried those chops out and could I really do it? Could I, could right. I do it? And so there was that hesitation of like, this is, this is real now. And can I, can I do it? So I, that was the first time I really fought with the imposter syndrome and kind of went through the whole, Ooh, am I really a warrior? Like I, I get a 300 on a PT test and I can do all of these things, but wh- what am I really going to be when things get serious? And and kind of had some of those doubts of like, am I really going to be able to do this? Like I would look at my soldiers that I was responsible for and say, wow, you know, am I going to be able to make tough choices? Am I going to be able to take care of them? Am I going to be able to do what I'm supposed to, what, what, what the army hired me to do? And so there was some, some concern. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily like, like scared or nervous about it, but it was, no, sure. more, you know, it was just more like that apprehension of, oh, what have I gotten myself into? And am I really the right person for this job? And can I, can I do it? What was the answer? How'd that work out? Um, well, I never deployed, so I never really got to try out those chops. Um, Charlie was deploying a lot. We had two kids. It was getting too difficult to try to figure out our life. And so it just became time for somebody to, to step back. And it was best for me to, to do that. Um, and at that time in our lives, it was absolutely the right answer. But it's certainly something in the back of my mind that I do say, wow, I wonder what that would have been like. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I wonder... I wonder if, if I would have been a good wartime S2 an Intel officer for a battalion or something, would I, would I have done well in this? Um, or am I just more of a garrison officer? Am I, am I better at, you know, making sure that soldiers are dressed right and march well and that the arms rooms are well taken care of and all of that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd like to believe but, you know, I think it goes back to, like, a lot of times we think about the Revolutionary War and we, we think about, you know, of course I would have been a colonist and been like, yeah, I can do that versus a loyalist. But yeah. you don't know until you're put into that situation. And, yeah. and I think that's the medal, that, that's the test that every service member goes through and thinks about. And until you're in it, you just, you just don't know. You served for 10 years, right, until you got out? total like that's with reserve time and that kind of thing but yes okay and so where were you as a person during the throughout those 10 years obviously and when i say as a person what i really mean is an is an artist um when you know that you'd been on this track you'd been immersed in uh the creative world and that had been your other kind of lifeline through high school, right? It had been ROTC and band. So now you really were playing hard on the ROTC part. You were going into the army. You were doing a a decade of military service. What was happening to the other part of you? What was happening to the artist part of you during those 10 years? You know, it's interesting. When I 
left college and commissioned, I thought that the artist side of me was just kind of going to fade away. There wasn't a band practice to go to. There wasn't any of that to go to. And it was kind of, uh, I, I was shocked by how much, when I got to my basic training, I didn't have any of my instruments with me. I was living in um, temporary quarters, that kind of a thing. Cause I was only supposed to be there for a few months and then go off to your next duty station. And I didn't realize how much it was a part of me. Um, bad day, go sit down at the piano and play Moonlight Sonata good day, Mm -hmm. go sit at the piano and play a Bach prelude, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I just didn't, I didn't expect it to to be right. Cause this is what I'd always wanted. This is what I'd worked for and that the band scholarship helped pay for and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I just didn't realize that it was going to be such an impact on me, but lo and behold, my first job was an honor guard platoon leader and the band was part of our company. And I had finally gotten my household goods I asked band director where's a good place to get my French horn serviced. And the next thing I know, I'm playing in the band as a guest. So, you know, it just every time I thought that music was maybe going to take a a serious backseat or not be a part of my life, something would come up. My chapel asked me to be the music director. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I get a job over here. The next thing I, you know, those kind of things. Um, I became an Irish step dance teacher in another, you know, at another duty station. And and that's part of it, right? Like as you move, and especially once I left active duty and I was a military spouse, every time you pick up and you, and you, you PCS, you move, you kind of have to recreate yourself because there's different things that are available for you in the different communities. You connect with different people. It's and, high school all over again every couple of years, right? It is. And it's, you know, it's speed dating and make friends. I mean, it's just kind of a yeah. wild uh, experience. And so it just kind of depended on what I fell into. I joined and did community college choir type stuff and sang that year. I went over here and was a music person for our ch- church here. Uh, you know, I taught the Irish step dancing. Like it just weird things would come up and they would, it, they found me. Uh, in, in whatever way. And in Korea was probably the hardest to find outside, but we formed that band that my husband's company had. So we did that. I bought a piano when I was in Korea. It's an electric full 88 key. It's awesome because all of the words on there are in Korean. Um, it's on 220 electric, right? Like, so I have to have a converter for it. But that was probably the best thing we ever did because I could come home and play. And that's what I found was I need that outlet after a long day or after something happens or something that that was just a way to come recenter, kind of reconnect with everything. And so the artist part of me needed, needed that outlet. And that's what keeps me from exploding from the, the organized type A personality from just getting to be out of control and, and like the most hated person ever. Like that's what keeps me human is the artist side. So it's a bit of art therapy that just yeah. goes along with it. Right. Yeah. It really is like the, the music, especially. And, and like the Irish, I used to tell people when they'd ask about Irish step dance and I was like, it's great. You have that wonderful lilting Irish music. You come in, you've had a rough day. You can't leave class without a smile on your face. And if you've had just like one of those like really kick your butt days, you put on the hard shoes, the tap shoes, right? And you're just banging and, you know, stomping into the ground. Like you can't come out of there as tense and crazed as you mm-hmm. walk in. 
because you, you're getting it out. You're putting it in a floor. You're, you're jumping around. You're with other people. You're, you're doing stuff, the music, everything. It just kind of invades in. And so it just kind of releases. And I think that's the biggest thing about having those artistic outlets, especially for soldiers, because our, our jobs, what we do, it, it, it's so invasive of our lives and our identity that sometimes we need to, to take it away a minute and just reconnect with our like deep humanity within there. Yeah. Tell me about that. Did you find that you had to, I don't want to say adopt a different personality, but, but kind of, you, you really became a different person when you had to, you know, you're in uniform and then you're going and do an Irish step dance or you're in uniform and then you're going and singing. I, I, could you be the same person or were you like, okay, this is Jekyll and Hyde. I do have to flip a switch and I do become a different person a little bit right now. Um, I, I, you know, I, I did tend to kind of hide my, my musical talent or whatever, but it was kind of one of those, well, this, this really isn't military, you know, like this isn't good yeah. military bearing right. to break out right. or whatever, but you know, something would happen. Somebody would see me or something, you know, and, and it was always kind of like you were saying at the beginning, how I was like, Oh, please don't make me the center of attention. Um, I, you know, it was kind of one of those, you know, this, this was my, I think two things, this was my private life, right? Like you kind of want to save something because so much of your life is out front and center in the military, because we really have to know each other so that we can Mm -hmm. do the things that we do. And it's so important, but there tended to be one of those, like, this is my thing that I get to hold and only the people that I trust the most, only the people that are in my inner circle get to see this part of me um, and get to see that because I, I think art is so personal that to, to let some of the folks that were kind of on the periphery, you know, my and whatnot to let them see that very, very personal part of me and that the, the passion of the music or whatever that is to see that that was just a little bit too, too much yep. to, to share in some cases. So I wanted to keep it back a little bit you know, and even being part of that band, like we competed in a competition. It wasn't like we, it was secretly and we would just meet to play for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We did a concert for the the little camp we were on and, and that kind of a thing. Um, but it was, that was different though, because that was a persona, persona. We're singing our rock songs. I'm in a group. It wasn't just me, but like for me to oh. sing something by myself or to do music that was more like, again, I'm more classical. So for me to do more classical type music in front of, my soldiers and stuff, that would have been a lot harder to do. I've asked this um, of people before, and it seems appropriate to ask again, but did you find the military was for for you, especially for your personal um, interests, your, your personality, did you find it was repressive or just disciplined for you? Did you find that you really had to subvert your inner artist or did you find, no, it's just very clear boundaries. I have left and right limits. And when the military time ends, then I, and I'm on my personal time, I, I find moments to kind of use art as a safety valve and kind of let out some of the pressure. You know, I, I think it was discipline, you know, it was a very disciplined kind of a thing. And, you know, like there's a time and a place for those kind of things because, because of the way that, especially music just kind of kept interweaving throughout my career, even though that wasn't my career path. Um, 
the military is very supportive, right? Like we've got our bands, they come and they play. They, it's not only for like, we, we hold on to the traditions that the military was there to keep us in step and to help us in war and, and do those kind of things. But also it's for morale, like, especially today, that's, that's a big part of what the bands are for. And so I think, you know, the, the military encourages the art. You think about the art centers on posts and all of the different outlets that they, that they provide, but it's just kind of one of those, that there's a discipline, there's a time and a place for me to break out in song. There's a time and a place yeah. for me to, to do that and to show that, you know, right. Like certainly again, as the drill and ceremony girl, I loved calling cadence because that was a song to me. And so doing PT with my soldiers, we, we rarely did group running, but occasionally, you know, we had to do those kind of things. And I loved getting out there and calling cadence. Um, it was a way for me to kind of sing to my sing with my soldiers without it being like singing, <laughs> right, like it was just a, a right. way for me to kind of get that in and to to do those kinds of things, and so that that was fun and good, but yeah, definitely discipline versus repression. If you'd had a one of your troops, some E four or something in in your in your under your command, show up while you were taking a solo in the church choir or something like that, would you have frozen? Would it have been, would it would have been, I'm, I'm suddenly tight and I can't really perform or would you have been able to troop through it and go, yeah, no, no, I can deal with this. This is fine. I'm happy to share this part of myself with them. Yeah, no, if they're in they're they're in that world, like at chapel or something where it's supposed to happen, totally cool. But like if I'd okay. been in my office, with the door, you know, like door shut or whatever. And I just like started getting carried away singing, not thinking anybody was really around. And then the troops came in. That's when I would have been like, hi. <laughs> so again, I think that's where the discipline side of it was, is that there was a time and place. And I, I never really quote unquote got caught like singing or doing something like that on duty, but I certainly practiced the Irish step dancing in the office and sometimes got caught with that. And that was always kind of like, because here I am, and I'm in BDU's, got boots on. It's the most bizarre looking thing. And here I am doing, you know, river dance craziness. And it's kind of, kind of wild. <laughs> Who caught you? Was it, was it a superior or a subordinate? Um, so at the time when I was taking, I was at the schoolhouse. Um, and so it was just, it was a, a group okay. of peers kind of a thing. Okay. Um, and the other captains at the cr captain's career course were walking by and they, they saw me kind of just messing around <laughs> in the corner and they just kind of, you know, that, that disdainful, like what is going yeah. on over there? Like, hi, <laughs> yep, I'm that weird person in the corner. Did okay. you get a nickname out of it? Did you, did you hear the end of it? I, no, I wasn't in the course with them. I was in the S3 oh. shop on my way, okay. um, on my gotcha. way out. So like they kind of knew me, but didn't know me. Right. Right. So, so I, all the I, all the names were behind doors that you I never got to hear. Yeah, gotcha. Did get a nickname, but I never <laughs> knew it. <laughs> so I don't remember what. Remind me where and when this was that you would take a second and like go sing when you were on duty. What, you remember you were telling me about that one time. I, I don't. I, I don't remember. Was it JSOC or something? And you I, I, again. I'm, I'm might just be making this up, but I remember you said there was a, t a time where people go, "Oh yeah, Lilla just needs to go sing for a second. Am I making mm -hmm. this up? Might be Maybe I'm making that. this up. Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. That, no, that really. I mean, I. I think the biggest thing was 
when I was a lieutenant, again, I was, I had been asked to play occasionally with, with the, the band there that was stationed at Wachuca. And so I'd be doing stuff and hear about a rehearsal and be like, Hey, the LT's got to go. <laughs> go play okay. the horn. Okay, and that's I'd fair. I'd yeah. go play, play the horn. And, and it was just kind of one of those weird, and that was always a weird thing. Cause again, it's all enlisted that are the bandsmen. I'm a Lieutenant Butter Bar, very new to this whole thing. I walk into the band room. I'm the highest ranking person, even the yeah. CW4, who's the band master. I outrank him. They call the building to attention and I'm looking around wondering <laughs> who just followed me in and oh my goodness, what, what's going on? And one of the, the bugle guys, they knew me pretty well from the honor guard stuff. They were like, man, that's for you. You should tell them at ease. <laughs> it's like, oh, at ease. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But Just being the center of attention again, Lilla. That's all you are. I get it. wasn't wasn't expected. <laughs> you know, they, that's how I got my first award, though. They were embarrassed by me. I went to play with them for their Christmas concert, and I had my airborne wings and my rainbow. I have served in the army for six months. Right. And that was it. Uh, again, it was in the nineteen in the nineties, and they weren't even issuing out the national defense ribbon anymore. And there were PFCs that had racks from all the stuff because they're doing stuff. They're getting recognized and whatever. Sure. And the uh, bandmaster came to my office um, <laughs> about three weeks later, like, ma'am, we got to fix something because your uniform is a hot mess. And I'm like, look it out. Oh, my God. I'm a hot mess. And I, I received an AAM for playing the French horn at a Christmas concert. They're like, we can't have you. You're embarrassing us. This is not okay. To be fair, I think Patton got started the same way. That's all right. It's plenty <laughs> of precedent for that. Um, wow. Yeah, no, that makes uh, <laughs> that makes some sense. Listen, I want to ask you about the transition when you became just purely a military spouse. So now you're kind of... <laughs> for lack of a better word. Well, first let me ask, did you feel like you were free to have your emotions back? Did you feel like, Oh, Hey, I don't have to maintain a certain demeanor. I, I don't have subordinates running around. I'm free to kind of just let, you know, the tears flow. If they want to come, I'm free to sing in the car. I'm free to do whatever. Was there anything like that for you? Or was that, had, had that already kind of been mitigated since you'd been in the reserves and kind of gotten used to, you know, being more of a civilian more often. Yeah. When I left, when I left active duty the first time, definitely there was a little bit of that freedom. I think the biggest thing was I didn't have to check my email every five minutes. Mm. I didn't have to tell people that I was going to go somewhere for the weekend. Like that was a big thing for me in the sense of that freedom. Um, but it was, we were, we were PCSing at the time. i left and then I joined Charlie at, at uh, from Wachuca to Campbell. So that was kind of a fun thing in the sense that I got to reinvent myself. That was the first real reinvention. Um, and then here I am a military spouse. I'm going to do my own thing. And definitely I, I got into community choir. Like I definitely looked for more artistic endeavors you did. Yeah. because I had time yeah. to yeah. do them. And I didn't have to, to be wary of, oh, well, I can do this. But because I tried to do stuff when I was active duty, but then it was one of those, well, if I get called, then I can't be there for the 
performance. Right. I couldn't be depended upon. Um, whereas I could commit to things and that was definitely cool. I did find myself in certain situations still trying to keep that military demeanor because I, I never wanted to do anything to like affect Charlie's career and somebody be like, Oh, he's the one with the crazy wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what did that mean? What did what did that mean you had to sacrifice or if not sacrifice, what did that mean you had to avoid? I mean, you weren't going to do a production of, you know, Oh, Calcutta anytime soon. Right. I mean, what, what, what was, what was out there that was, would not have made him look good. I, I don't think there was a specific thing. I think it was just right. Like, especially when we went to functions or whatever, right. Like Mm. I always, again, like I found myself doing that military discipline thing. And even though I wasn't in anymore and even now, been out for longer than I was in, I I tend to revert to the training of, okay, this we're in a military setting and I'm going to respond like the way I, like, I guess there tends to be, you know, I tend to stand up a little straighter. I tend to do a little bit, Mm. a little bit different, you know, have that military bearing. Whereas if I'm just hanging out with a bunch of spouse friends, it's just a little bit more, relaxed in that sense but if it's an official function or things like that I'm very cognizant that what I do reflects on my husband and I don't ever want to have any possibility that something I do could affect him sure no that's fair so then now that you're a spouse um, I'm going back but when you first become solely a spouse and have no official military affiliation career-wise did you go, Hey, you know something? I used to be the triple threat. I used to be able to sing and I was dancing and I was playing an instrument. Um, did you feel any of those had deteriorated from your time in the military? And now you were like, I want to get that back. I want to make sure, you know, I haven't played in a while or I haven't sang in a while or I haven't danced in a while. Was there something that you, some muscle that you felt like you needed to exercise? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, my singing, I'd been a part of church choirs, but singing wasn't there. I'd lost some of my upper range and that was Mm. kind of, so I looked into, you know, joining more intense community choirs where I would really have to Mm. focus and do things. Um, and, and, you know, just trying to do harder stuff and kind of get those chops back and, and, and really, uh, integrate. And I found, especially like as we moved, Finding, finding a chapel was important for us as a family, but for me, finding something that was musically, um, that the chapel had a music program. Cause that usually was the first kind of offset, find that music. And then from there, maybe somebody would say, Oh, did you know that there's this or what mm. about that? And again, I tended to fall back on music. I love dance and I would look for dance, but that, that was just a kind of a fun thing. And it was a great way to do PT without doing PT. And Irish step dancing is so much more fun than running five miles. Right. right. Um, and with the wooden floor is even better on your knees. So, you know, it's those kind of things, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something that I had to have for my artistic outlet it, music because it's so ingrained. That's, that's the need. That's what I need to have. And so church tended to be a great place to connect and find other opportunities to, to do things. And, um, so that was fun. I, I always in the back of my mind thought theater would be cool. And we had the opportunity to, to be a part of a, of a 
theater production that our church did. They did Sound and Music. And so that was super fun to then have all of those things because you got to dance and you got to sing and you got to do things and you got to be with people. Um, and that was really fun to be a part of something like that again. Um, and I don't think, I don't think that that would be something that I would have done when I was military. Yeah. Trying, trying to do theater, right. Time, time constraints really hard to do and to continue to connect with the theater because the, the time commitment is so significant, but also again, that's, that's a really, that's even more putting yourself out there yeah. very exposed. Yeah. And I, I don't think that I would have been brave enough to do that when I had soldiers yeah. that would find out and come, you know, watch, watch the LT kiss another man, you know, what, what, the, totally. right? like, you know, cause you're, you're doing the less, you know, whatever, it just kind of weird or dancing with somebody else or saying that naughty word or whatever it is. I just was emoting. Like, just emoting yeah. in general, you know, it's like you're, you're, I mean, the military correctly, you know, is about, uh, you have to learn to have the stiff upper lip and suppress emotions because it's not the right time and place for it. So to see somebody on stage where all you're trying to do is emote is, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, it's across yeah. purposes. And and to play, like if I'd ever gotten a part where I had to play somebody who was super silly or, you know, something very different from my personality, I think that would have been really hard to have let them see that. And for them not to wonder, like, is she really like that? Like, right. Like right. do the seal ball story. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Would not be a good, you can't recover from that easily. Yeah. That's no. right. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you something um, just because it crossed my mind and I'm not sure if it ever played a factor. Did you notice that your singing, your dancing, your music playing increase, decrease changed at all when Charlie was deployed? Was it, was it more, did it serve more of a purpose then, or was it just kind of, well, I'm already in this battle rhythm and this is what I do. And, and, you know, the deployment is the deployment. It was a lifeline. It was absolutely a lifeline. And I, I have tendencies to be a night owl. And, um, so when he was deploying the most was when I was teaching Irish step dancing and doing music for our church. So I was kind of already in that, but he was constantly going. And I found that I was more creative because if I woke up at midnight with a routine in my head, I wasn't affecting anybody by going downstairs mm. and working it out. I, you know, I didn't have to be worried about that. And so I could kind of let my, the creative juices run whenever, whenever they happened. Um, and I would record <laughs> back with the cassette tapes <laughs> back in the day, you know, I would record Christmas cantata and Easter music and stuff for our choir. And I would do parts for people to learn and stuff like that. And it was it, in my way, it was a way to kind of keep my mind off of everything, not have to, you know, it kept me busy doing things. It was a service. I'm giving back to my community in the church. I'm helping folks who maybe don't have as much musical talent, but just want to be a part of the choir to be able to feel like they could, come and serve in the church choir as well. So if I made these tapes and did all these things for them, um, then I was doing, you know, I was doing something that kept me busy so I could keep my mind off of the deployment and kind of keep myself sane. I know this is going to be a personal question. There's no way for this not to be a personal <laughs> question, but um, I, I don't mean it to be, you know, lifetime movie-esque or Hallmark movie-esque, but what was the most emotional you ever got performing? 
Do you remember? Is there a moment that stands out that you're like, boy, suddenly like everything lined up and I really connected with the music or the words or something at that moment, either because of what was going on with you or just because of the situation just performance wise. So I'm sure that there's other ones, but the one that I remember, it's more recent. Um, so I, I think, you know, like the most recent one blocks out the rest of them. <laughs> right, right. Sure. <laughs> <In some> ways, <laughs> yeah. But um, there's a there's a song called Carried to the Table. It's a Christian praise song. Um, and it, it's one of those songs that has double meaning. So it talks about like us presently coming to the table for communion and, and the importance of that and what Christ does. But it also refers to an Old Testament story of Meshibetheth. I always say his name wrong, but he's the son of Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, King Saul. And Jonathan and David were best of friends. They fought together. They did stuff together. And, you know, they would be, you know, brothers, battle, battle buddy brothers. Um, and they had a very tight relationship. And of course, Saul, his father, Jonathan's father is trying to kill David because he's going to become king. And so there's all this other things. And Jonathan knows that he's going to die. He's going off to battle. He knows he's going to die. And he looks at David and says, take care of my son who, who is crippled. And David promises that he's going to take care of his son. And so every day, of course, I'm going to get emotional again. No. David would have him carried to his table to feed him. And then that culture in that time, you would never keep an adversaries, so to speak, no. son and lineage alive. So this is absolutely amazing that, that David would do this. And of course that's representative of what Christ is doing for us and whatever. And so it's just amazing um, that this, like the songwriter, like the way they do it and the way the music is written, it's so powerful and that they're able to take kind of this, story that most people don't know. It's not a Jonah and the yeah. whale. It's not a Noah's yeah. Ark. You know, it's, it's just this little piece, this little nugget from the old Testament, connect it with what's going on in the new Testament and to present it in such a way. And it's such a powerful thing. And so like telling the story now, I tried to explain that the first time we presented it at our chapel here at West point and barely made it through the explanation. Yeah. And it's yeah. just, I think it's just powerful because in this time in my life, right, like there's so much going on. There's so much uncertainty. There's a lot of things going on. And at least for me with my faith as a Christian, I get carried to the table every day. And so having that connection and being able to, to convey that musically, I think is so powerful and has its ability. And so I think it's important with music and what I find so interesting when I can find the stories behind the music, right? Like when you really understand it and you have a chance to really read the words and understand them, they can really, they can change your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's five. So the Bible, my whole life, I've never heard that story. That's incredible. Yeah. And I, I get why that would start to make me tear up. And then I, you know, <clears throat> I had to get some good coaching, but yeah. No, listen. I mean, no, it's it's great. I mean, but that is that's the stuff that's that's worth tearing up over. You know, uh, I mean that is that's not a cheap cry. That's um that's something that's yeah, and that's that's the height of music is something that inspires. I think that was Bob Dylan that said that. He said the 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 biggest compliment you can pay an artist is that they inspired you. Um, and I always thought that was a great 
comment. Um, and I think especially in, um, you know, our celebrity culture these days where music is a path to fame and not that people that are famous and musicians don't love their music as well, but where people then want to get close to them and they want to personalize it and they want to grab them and touch them and mimic them and all that. But I think to keep that Dylan quote in mind, I think it's important that, yeah, the, the real point is to inspire you. Does it make what you're doing better or give it a little bit of a lift? And I think that's a, uh, yeah, something like a song like that that does that for people is is the height of inspiration. I'll use that to go into kind of a more um, frivolous topic. You have the choice. Anybody, any performance, any show, who are you? Where are you? What are you performing? Oh, and it could be anything. It could be theater. It could be singing. It could be playing. It could be dance. But you know, you're you're you get the the twenty four hour life as whoever you want. What's your dream performance? Hmm. Wow. Uh, that's a tough one. I, you know, it's kind of funny. It depends on what mood I'm in. That's fair. Right. Yeah, you know, that's or, or not for the longest time. Absolutely. And I've mentioned before, you know, to be Christine and fan of the opera would be amazing. Um, I think now as I'm older and I realize more of the, the hardship of true broad, like Broadway theater and how, what that life is like and whatnot. Um, I think in some ways I would have liked to have been at the performance of um I'm gonna get it wrong I'm pretty sure it was Bernstein that conducted but that might be not right in Germany after the wall fell oh yeah they did a performance of Beethoven's fifth symphony and the connection of Beethoven's fifth I think within war is pretty amazing. The opening sequence of da 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 dum is the Morse code for the letter V, and they use that often to represent victory throughout World War II. The BBC would open up with the timpani doing that, da 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 you know, to let people know. And it was just kind of their subversive way of just making sure that everything they do was we are going to win. Like it was that wonderful unity uh, of of everything in their being was about that. And um, there had been playing of Beethoven's fifth at the end of World War II, but then when finally the wall came and Germany was reunited and, and reunified, they did that concert kind of again and did that. And they had musicians from all of the allies and from East Germany to symbolize bringing them back in and to, to be there and to be a part of that, to, to play that kind of music in, in, or in a symphony orchestra would be amazing at that level. And it'd be just a lonely little French horn in there would be, would be wonderful. But then to be there at that type of a moment with that yeah. significance, I think would be the ultimate opportunity to to, to be there and to be a part of, to be one of those musicians that brought that celebration to the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. I love that answer. 
Can we do some shameless self-promotion? Absolutely. So what psychotic impulse made you want to join VetRep? <laughs> well, I got a really good what made you hitch your wagon to the star or vice versa, as the case might be. You know, I, I had just finished my master's degree in library and information sciences and had looked for jobs and looked at what, what was next. What, what am I supposed to be doing? I got this degree. What does that mean? Looked into opportunities there. Not a lot of things were really there. And then met you and Jane at that dinner. And then we talked a little bit later and just hearing what vet reps about and, and the opportunity to, to be in the veteran world again in, in a more significant way. I, I'm peripherally with Havoc Journal and Charlie, what, what he does. Certainly, I get to do a lot of things with folks being a military spouse. But to actively be a part of that world again and be in the art world and having those two come together was, wow, it was so it, it, it just tantalizing in a way, right? Like it was like, is there really a job where I can do that, where I can put those things together and they're supposed to be together. And, and I get to, I get to be in both worlds. I get to have a foot in both worlds. So I get to have my organization, you know, as a managing director, I get to take care of the backside of things and do all the organizational stuff. I'm a first sergeant, you know, making sure things are good. But then I also get to have the 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 excitement the creativity the the unexpected of the arts world and getting to marry those two together and live in that world every day and not try to have to put piece it together on my own but this is what I do and when I get to be a part of and build it build it up because it's new and so I get to be a plank holder within that. Those were things like this is an opportunity of a lifetime. And I couldn't pass it. And it's been fun because as I've talked to people and told them about, hey, I'm doing this vet rep thing, whatever. They're like, oh, my gosh, how did they, that is your dream job. I can't see you doing anything wow. else. And so it's just one of those like people see those things within me. And, and so it really is that that's that's what I'm meant to do. And thankfully, the opportunity came and found me. You know, it's funny because uh, for everyone listening, Lil and I talk often kind of about the philosophy of vet rep and not sort of in a head nodding agreement, but or not because of head nodding agreement, but because, um, you know, we always want to try to cement more of the vision that we have ideas, we have concepts and we constantly try to ground it and go, okay, so what does this mean and how do we actualize it? And, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one thing that we haven't totally talked about, but that I think you're raising and both it's funny because with your Leonard Bernstein story and with what you're saying now, they, there's actually a dovetailing where there's a maturation that happens as an artist with life. And this is not news, uh, you know, as you get older and wiser and you have different perspectives on on your art and on life. And so obviously that's going to impact what you do artistically. Um, for the veteran community, though, this is an, ex an incredibly 
lived in community that we're talking about. This is a lot of life experience, even among relatively young people. They might be 30 years old, but they've been deployed multiple times and they've experienced sometimes divorces and, you know, failures, successes, um, you know, a wide range of human emotions in the extreme in a very compressed time period. So what that does for the individual's art, I think is broaden it, deepen it, strengthen it, enrich it, um, sometimes pervert it. And I don't mean that everybody immediately goes to sex when I say that, but I don't mean that. What I mean is, it's just, it, it colors it. It, it, it maybe puts a twist on it that maybe will be temporary. Maybe it's, you know, incredible disappointment, anger. A lot of vets that you and I both know and are talking to frequently about Afghanistan, you know, are deep in the weeds in that right now. And it's, uh, sometimes hard to see the silver lining in the cloud. Um, if there is a silver lining, but that's a subject for another show point being, um, that, that does have a material effect on your art though. And I think what you're bringing up is, is very much something that you and I haven't talked about yet, but should be at the core of what vet rep is about, which is, um, why we're doing this is to allow veterans, um, to embrace the maturation of their art that, yeah, you listen to ACDC when you're 18. Now ACDC means something very different to you. Now it's the sound of, you know, that it may now that now uh, back in black is the song you heard when you came in off the hangar after a medevac mission. You know, it's not exactly the same as it was before. You know, it has a different connotation. It has a different feeling for you. And, um, and I think that's what we're trying to honor and give voice to is the maturation of those experiences and what, how that impacts the art. Am I saying this well? I feel like I'm kind of rambling and repeating myself, but I'm hoping hopefully this makes sense. I, I think I think a key thing, right, is, is art imprints deeper into a person than other experiences and other things. And so it's one of those, like, right, like if you if you you see some dementia patients, most often we talk about it in the music sense, right? Like person's kind of gone but you put a put them down in front of a piano and the next thing you know they're playing a hymn mm-hmm. that they knew when mm-hmm. they were you know 10 and inch choir or there's sure. a famous ballerina there's a, a video out you know fame of a famous ballerina and they put on swan lake she's sitting in a wheelchair and all of her movements are exactly the right thing to to be odette i mean it's just art imprints in a different way and so it's so um, visceral. And then when we put that on the experiences of what folks who serve also have, so we've got this visceral experience and then oftentimes it's, it's connected to a a visceral art music or they see an image or they've painted that image or whatever it is. And we can put those two together. That makes a much more powerful presentation. It helps the message get across. Like people are going to pay attention to that a little bit more. And one of the things I think we talk about, again, a lot is that bridge, right? Like trying yeah. to help people see see what we saw, understand where our life experiences are coming from. Maybe why do I react to things this way or do things that way? Or, you know, that those kind of things. We, the veteran community is such a broad community, but there are some things very similar throughout that those threads and trying to pull those threads out and help the wider civilian community to, to understand us a little bit better and giving those of us that are veterans and that have served opportunities and outlets to let those visceral feelings 
emotions, thoughts, all of those things out. Because I think, again, right, we've been disciplined our whole life. In some cases, yeah. some have taken it as a repressive, I've got to repress all of this. There needs to be that outlet to let those things out. So being able to marry those and having it, having others see it, feel it, experience it, makes those experience valid. Yeah. If I just let it out in a closet somewhere, yeah, I get a little relief, but it doesn't go as much. But if I have something where somebody actually can experience it with me and see it, now it's validated, it's real, and I can go on with that and, and do something. Is it always a therapeutic thing? Not necessarily, and maybe it doesn't need to be for everyone, but it has an opportunity for that. And I think that's what's what's so important about the arts is that they have those experiences. And it may not be a therapeutic for a playwright who's written it, but somebody who's in the audience watching it yeah. can get that therapy can relate. and relate and those things. And those all open those conversations. And that's one of the biggest things today that you constantly hear that people are, are just begging for. Can we please yeah. have a conversation? This is a great way to open it up. Arts aren't, you know, you go to an art thing, you're, you're not like ready to like get into a fight. And so it yeah. has that openness to it. No, totally. And I think, you know, it's, I, I want to throw out the caveats that you and I always talk about, which is that, yes, we are a charity. Yes, we're a 501c3 and all that, but pending, pending 501c3. Well, let's give me the, the reminder. Yes, it is pending. Uh, but that said, we're not actually doing charity work per se. We're trying to entertain, and people have to be entertained by what we do. And there is a bit of a rub because for a lot of vets, I mean, they're not, they don't have the privilege of, let's say, having gone to four years of NYU undergrad and then gone on to get a master's degree and, you know, have this long tracker where they've been in drama club in high school. And, you know, it's just been a nonstop parade of getting ready for a showbiz career. Um, that's rarely, if ever, have that opportunity. So there is going to be a little bit of um, pipe cleaning. There's going to be a little bit of gunk that's going to come out. It's going to come out raw. It's going to come out. Um, you know, there there are going to be some noble failures as vets try to purge the pipes and and kind of get to the core of what they're trying to say and what they're trying to communicate and what what form that that uh, artistry takes. Our job is to curate that and try to hopefully allow them the forum to get the gunk out and then curate the good stuff and say, okay, now this is what's worth keeping. This is what's worth showing people. Um, and I think one of the biggest places that we we're going to have that um, experience is when it comes to comedy, because, and, and, and again, I'm saying stuff that Lil and I've talked about and, and agreed on length, but just to clarify, I mean, one of the, our neuroses is we don't want to do platoon on stage every week. Um, there is a place for that. Don't get me wrong. Well-told war story is, is timeless. And, and obviously that's, that's we're we're open to it is a fair assessment, but that's not all we want to do. And we want vets to be able to write whatever is in their hearts and whatever they want to say. But I do think comedy is going to be a place where I can see the veteran community will, where that bridge and the sieve mill divide will seem to widen. And it's because of how veterans tell jokes. And I want to throw this out to you, Lil, and, and tell me if you agree, disagree, whatever you want to add, change, or delete to this. But my sense is vets have a really raw, rough sense of humor because 
when you're all, when your guns are all pointed in the same direction and there's no question that even the person you're making fun of you will die on their behalf you can kind of tell any joke you want that kind of gives you a lot of carte blanche and yeah okay we're going to make fun of this dude or we're going to say this thing or we're going to constantly call him this name because if anybody tries to mess with him we will kill them and that there's a certain comfort and assurance that comes from that. The problem is that when you do that in the civilian world, that's not necessarily a given. So when it comes to comedy especially, I think the best way I can describe it is you're juggling with chainsaws. And it's awesome and it's thrilling, but you really got to know what you're doing because those chainsaws can really slice people up. And I think in the civilian world right now, there's that sense that, hey, let's just not even mess with chainsaws because – we're not sure we're all pointing in the same direction. I'm mixing metaphors here, but we're not sure we're all pointing in the same direction. And those chainsaws can really hurt if you don't catch them correctly. And I'm not, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the right answer, but I do think it is implicit on us to curate well and make sure that the veteran sensibilities are being accurately conveyed. And that there's that understanding that this is why we can tell the jokes we tell. This is why the sense of humor develops. This is why the gallows humor develops it's very easy in isolation to look, hear a veteran joke and go, God, how are you making fun of dead babies? And it's like, well, it's because you were busy trying to save dead babies. And you, you got to be able to – you got to blow off the steam somewhere, man. And this is, this is the outlet. And, uh, and I think that's something the civilian community doesn't always twig to. What do you think? I know I just filibustered for a minute, but what do you think about all that? No, I, I think you're spot on. And I think if we look at it in the sense of – like, right, like you can tell jokes and you can get away with certain things within your family because you guys kind of all know each other. And like you, you have that rougher sense of humor, the drier wit, the more sarcasm oftentimes within your family than you would out and about at work or other places, right? Like you can do different things. And, and that's what happens oftentimes in the military. We, we, we live, breathe, sleep, eat together. And so it becomes kind of like a family unit. And so then the humor and the stuff that comes along with that comes in. And so trying to export that onto a stage without building that structure yeah. underneath is hard. And so that's our part as the curators is to try to help establish like this is this is the backstory to it and why this works and it's okay and it's funny because these people live, breathe, eat, sleep together and, and their family in there. And so in the end, yeah, I'm ribbing you. I'm calling you these things. I'm doing these things, but it's not, it's not the same as if I did it, you know, and I just met you or I only see you a couple of times. <laughs> right. you know, like you're on my sports team right. and I see you once a week. It's just a different right. environment. But yeah. understanding that and putting it maybe in those terms um, helps because absolutely the humor of the military, that is, that is something that, I think for uh, for the civil, like it's such a shame that civilians don't get to see that well, more often because yeah, it's, just, it's yeah. such a gem. It's yeah. so fun, and and those are some of my better memories. Is some of the craziness and the antics and the jokes and the whatevers have happened. That's that's what made the days shorter and made them bearable. Absolutely, and to be fair. Um, I mean, unless this be interpreted as we're saying, hey, so we're going to make sure we really put the reins on the veteran community and really stream, string, uh, 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 screen out any of the detritus and make sure it's only quality stuff. 
let me be clear. I, I think the civilian community is the one that has to do a lot of the bridging here because they're, you know, the veterans can accurately portray a situation. And I, there have been times in my writer brain where I've heard just been privy to a conversation going on behind me or in another room or out in the field and gone, if I wrote down word for word everything I'm hearing and put it as a play, it would be excruciatingly accurate and no one in the civilian world would understand it. It would be misinterpreted. It would be um, you know, you, you, it would seem predictable or it would seem like, oh, this you're just doing this for shock value. And it's and I, I think a lot of it is understanding the veteran experience well enough to go, oh, actually, this is a microcosm of of a, a really healthy trait, which is a good host body, a healthy host body. And and these are the conversations you can have when there's implicit trust. And in the civilian world, it'd be great to model more after it. I would love to see the civilian world be able to juggle chainsaws at will because there's such implicit trust in the civilian world in America as well. Um, obviously, we're not there yet, and that's wishful thinking. But I, I think there's something that the civilian world can learn from that too. Yeah, it's the fly in the wall thing, right? Like really getting that fly in the wall so that the civilian world can peek in and see the the real us, right? Like you, you've got the embeds for journalists for in the war and you see some of it, but you you don't, you, you don't necessarily, you kind of need that, that hidden camera. And so the way to do that is to have the vets themselves bring that humor and bring it and, and, and for them to do it and to let it go. And it just is one of those, again, like you said, we don't want to sanitize it because then it, it breaks everything down. We just have to give that context so that people are prepared. Like, Hey, here's what's going on. Remember that this is this way. Now, now that you're set and you're ready and you know, you understand where we're coming from, enjoy this, laugh with us, have fun with us, experience life with us. Um, so that you can kind of see like, what, what was it like to, you know, the, the day in the life of so-and-so or whatever. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. It's, it's funny. I'll, I'll say this just to kind of give a different color to it. Cause I imagine that people listening might think we're just talking about, you know, I don't know, uh, pantsing a guy in the defect or something kind of, you know, fraternity amateurish or something like that. But, but some of the situations I, I remember, uh, going to central Africa with, um, a bunch of guys and a lot of them were from, um, Alabama and, um, you know, a lot of them had a lot of experience, uh, you know, all over the world, but some of them didn't, some of them, this was their first deployment. And, uh, one of them was an 18 year old kid from Alabama who had, I, I, I think the first time he left the state was to go to basic and, um, and he didn't have any, uh, any experience outside of that. And I'm saying a lot of this also for Charlie because I, I I want to do a good Alabama bit here for him uh, since <laughs> since I know he'd appreciate that. But seeing this kid interact with Central Africans, um, uh, specifically the ones I'm thinking about were Ugandans, and um, you know Uganda was a colony of England, so they speak English. Um, but to have this kid come up and the Ugandans all looked at me and they were like. We, we don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> and, um, and then he got into arguments with people over Lake Victoria in, in Uganda because he said that there's no way that could be a lake because I can't see the other side of it. So it's clearly an ocean. 
Um, and it was, but it was one of those, it's it one of those scenarios that was just hilarious. It, it, it was one of those things I was like, if only I had the bandwidth to write this stuff down and verbatim and hear capture some of these conversations. And what annoyed me in my writer mind when I was hearing this and thinking these things is I thought if I were to write this down to an audience in the United States right now, a theater going audience, they would be very tempted to look at that and go, Oh, got it. Ignorant backwoods redneck meets Central Africans and is shown up and 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 they'd see some morality play playing out in in that context. When in fact that couldn't have been further from the truth. In fact, there was it was truly a marriage between him and the and the people he was talking with, where they were each getting things from each other, and there was a, a much more rich and nuanced dynamic at play. But it doesn't fit into an easy kind of uh, I don't want to be glib when I say this, but an easy kind of op-ed kind of opinion, punditry opinion that you might have of people. And what what one of my thoughts when we were flying out of country was how much more this kid knew about Africa. Than people sitting on the Upper West Side sipping lattes at Starbucks right now. Not to demean people sipping lattes and Starbucks on the Upper West Side. I know and love many of them. But you can read all the op-ed pieces you want, but very few of them know the back streets of Entebbe the way this kid did. And and have had personal relationships and been to people's homes and you know, become taken family pictures with them the way this kid just out of Alabama, like with no other you know, worldly travel at his disposal, um, you know, uh, had, had just done. And also one last point on this was the similarities between the two where I would humbly submit that people with less use of their hands, people that didn't, weren't as, didn't know how to use tools, didn't know how to problem solve, didn't know how to put duct tape in the right spot and, and Jerry rig things, uh, would have been infinitely less successful in rapport building than he was. They could come in with all the knowledge of Idi Amin or, you know, uh, I don't know, the history of Uganda, but they didn't have, but his functional skill set was incredibly valuable to people and built rapport in ways that most people wouldn't appreciate. So I say that again, just to kind of reemphasize the point that I think jokes in that context and that world mean a lot more than necessarily what you would just see on the page from just capturing a conversation verbatim. And I think uh, I put that out there, not just to, so we can nod heads at each other and agree, but also for anybody listening as as you're submitting plays to us and thinking of this stuff, you know, factor that in, know your audience and know who we're trying to write these stories for. And a lot of times it is going to be a civilian audience. And, uh, and the more of that thing can be captured, I think the richer the theater going experience will be and the better and deeper and more lasting those and impactful those stories can be as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. I'm not setting you up with any question. I'm just like, you know, telling a whole thing and then you have no choice but to go. Yeah. Right. But comment digress as you see fit based on what I said. Oh, I thought this was my chance to start asking you. (laughs) Sure. Why not? It's your, it's your show, whatever you, you're the star, whatever you want, Lilla, you know, <laughs> no, a harder job having to come up with a good question that leads to good answers. And yeah, stuff. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, listen, this has been, uh, this has been awesome. This is, I, I really, 
Um, I know I joked uh, up front, this is low hanging fruit, which is not a joke. I mean, it, you, we do work together all the time. And as you and I know, we, we could have rescheduled this four or five times and we still would have found time to do it. But, uh, but God, I think it really is a great, um, a great story. Lilla, you've had a great life and you've had a great story and it's been, um, it ain't over yet by a long shot. We got a lot of, a lot of mountains to climb together still to come, but, um, what a rich uh, blending of the warrior and the artist. I think a lot of people are going to hopefully be inspired by it. Um, they're certainly going to learn a lot from it. And uh, I'm glad we could do this. It was such a privilege and an honor to be able to be a part of this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think back on my life so far and am deeply grateful for all the opportunities. And, and when I realize and think about it, that, this wasn't just an automatic that music was going to be a part of my life that I got very lucky to have the mom that I did do and in the opportunities that came my way. Um, wow. This is, this is great. And I'm really excited about the future and what we can do with that rep. It's going to be an amazing ride. I agree. I agree. All right, Lilla, I'm going to stop the show and we'll get back to working. <laughs> What? I don't get the day off? <laughs> that was the Savage Wonder of Lilla Faint. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists, and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. Check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. That's where you can always find us, always stay up to date with what we're doing. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. It's the literary blog of the Veterans Repertory Theater. You can always find it either at savagewonder.substack.com or at vetrep.org backslash now playing. So again, you can always find Savage Wonder either at savagewonder.substack.com or vetrep.org backslash now playing. You can always subscribe to this podcast at savagewonder.podbean.com or vetrep.org backslash now playing or wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. You can say whatever you want, whatever feedback you have, questions, comments, snide remarks, we welcome all of it. If you could just attach them to a five-star review though, that would be outstanding. And while you're at it, if you're on Instagram, give us a follow. We're at Veterans Repertory Theater. Again, Veterans Repertory Theater on Instagram. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. So let me spell it here. Veterans, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, theater. And that's the American spelling E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on Instagram or Vet Rep Theater on Twitter, which is a lot easier to spell. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog at Savage Wonder, please go to vetrep.org backslash submissions. So again, any uh, submissions you want to send us, vetrep.org backslash submissions. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all. <laughs>